0: Good morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. morning. Y'all, it is spring forward, spring break, and um, we're all scared to handshake. So, I mean, we knew that uh, it was going to be a different kind of morning. So, I'm going to need every ounce of energy you got this morning. My coffee is still too hot for me to drink because I'm a wimp. So, uh, anytime you hear something good this morning, I just need you to say, like, amen or yeah. And if you don't like what you hear, don't say anything. Um, So... Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Scott Gilliland. I am one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. And along with Reagan Gilliland, uh, we are the co-pastors here for this community that we call Thrive. And it's good to be with you as we continue in our sermon series called Soul Reset. I want to say welcome to those of you who are with us online. Uh, if you are sick and at home, thank you for staying at home. And, uh, and if you're traveling for spring break, we're glad that you could be with us as well. And um, so, to get into today's conversation, we're going to be talking about uh, a a few verses at the end of Matthew 11 and then a couple of stories at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, and it all has to do with um, what it means to follow Jesus and to find life and to find abundance and and to find healing and, and all really good things. And to get there, to start, we're going to talk about etiquette natural place to start in a conversation of those things. I love the magazine Mental Floss. Anybody else love the magazine Mental Floss? Have you ever heard of Mental Floss? Great. Only me. Great illustration, Scott. Good one. Awesome. Um, so it's a it's a magazine for people that like to learn and who are a little bit nerdy like I am. And they have a great website too. You should check it out. And I was reading one of their articles. It was all about the history of etiquette, right? That's the kind of stuff that comes up in mental floss. Yeah, I know. Okay, now I know why you don't read it. So um, they, they were talking about some of these things that, that all of us do, or or a lot of us do, or we sort of is traditionally done. And the The question is why? Where did this come from? So here's a few. Saying "Bless you" after you sneeze well, on a lot of people's minds right now. Um, this goes all the way back to the date 590 CE when Pope Gregory I commanded that anyone who sneezed immediately be blessed because they were afraid they might have the plague. Right, so bless you. Right, drive the demons out. Um, shaking hands. We shake hands because several centuries ago uh, in England it was a way of showing that you and the person you were greeting were not armed. Right, you had to have your hand free. Let's shake hands. Right, what a what a wonderful time to be in, right? Um, Keeping your elbows off the table, this one I'm really bad at. This was back in medieval times uh, when the lords and ladies would host these really big banquets and feasts, and there were lots of people crowded around the table, so you didn't have a lot of room to begin with, and then if you put your elbows on the table, it it meant that maybe you were one of those lowly peasants who didn't have enough to eat, and so you kept your elbows off the table so you could act like one of those well-fed, upright citizens, right? Covering your mouth when you yawn is not just a sign of boredom back in the day. It was a way to keep your soul in your body for fear that it would escape out of your mouth. And it was also a way to keep evil spirits from coming inside of your body by covering your yawn. Uh, allowing a, a woman to walk at a man's right side, the traditional way that we escort someone down an aisle maybe. Uh, this was uh, back in the days of knights in shining armor who were right-handed. If the woman was at your right side, they'd have a harder time attacking her. That's why you kept her on that side, right? It makes a lot of sense today. Um, I'll run through the last ones pretty quickly. We shower brides with gifts because back in the day there was a dowry, and if the mom and dad didn't approve of the wedding, then they wouldn't provide the dowry, so all the family and friends had to provide all the gifts to make the dowry for the wedding. And so today, I just ask the mom and dad of the bride, how do you feel about the wedding? If they say, he's great, then I say, great, no gift. You know, it's easy. Um, We clink glasses for a toast to make sure that the other person isn't trying to poison us. We RSVP to an invitation because it comes from répondez s'il vous plaît, and I guess fancy people thought the French were fancy back in the day. We don't point at people because we're directing our evil eyes energy at them, and we don't want to do that. Uh, We don't wear white after Labor Day because one day all the rich women in the world said, let's just find a way to make sure other women know they're not as rich as we are. We'll just not wear white after a certain day. And then we pull out a lady's chair for her because back in the day, their dresses were literally too big to even grab the chair. And so now that Reagan wears pants, I say, get your own chair, right? So that's origins of etiquette. I'm kidding. These are little jokes. You just fit them in your pocket, right? Little tiny jokes. So etiquette, 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 what we do, what we're supposed to do, the way we were raised to behave, the way a good person behaves, the way that you're supposed to behave or else you might get shamed or might get guilt-tripped, right, by your grandmother at Thanksgiving table. That's my story. So um, anyways, what if our faith becomes like that? What if our faith becomes a series of expectations and social customs and boxes to be checked and things that are supposed to have been done uh, for fear that if we don't do them, if we don't check all the boxes, if we don't act the right way, say the right thing, behave the right way, then we might not be included or accepted in the way that we want to be by God? What happens when our faith begins to look like that? What happens when our churches? Start to look like that when they stop being houses of grace and become temples of judgment where the bar is set so high as to only be achieved by the most righteous amongst us. And the rest of us are left wondering if God's love is beyond our reach. What do we do with a faith like that or with a church like that? That's the kind of church, that's the kind of faith that Jesus encountered when He was speaking to a group of Jewish people at the end of Matthew chapter 11. He was talking to a group of people whose faith had become like that. And He offers them some really kind and comforting and healing words. Before we read them, let's say a word of prayer. Um, If this is your first time with us, we pray before we read the Scripture here in Thrive uh, because we believe that um, the Bible is a living text, and we invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of this process so that it could make it come alive for us and change the way we live in new and profound ways. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for a moment that we can sit and breathe. Maybe there's someone in this room that's not going to hear a word I say because all they really needed right now is just to sit and breathe. God, thank you for the rest that we can find in you. Thank you for the empty spaces. Thank you for the ways in which you call us back to the simplicity of faith. You help us to take what has gotten so complicated and so rigid, and you break it down into its basic ingredients and allow us to find life and love again. Thank you for that. God, as we prepare to receive your words this morning from the gospel of Matthew, would you make them come alive for us? Help them to leap off off of the screens and off the pages of our Bibles into our hearts that they might actually change the way that we live because the way we live may not be bringing us much life. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. So in Matthew 11, beginning in uh, verse 28, Jesus says this Come to me, all of you good churchy people, all of you good churchy people who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble the most humble, (laughs) gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear and my burden is light." I started going to my very first church when I was five years old, and I went to visit my grandparents. I spent the summer with my grandparents in Greensboro, Georgia, and I went to Greensboro United Methodist Church for their vacation Bible school. That was my first experience in church. And then I went to my first home church when I went with my family to W.C. Martin United Methodist Church in Bedford, Texas. It's good to see you. And I joined that church when I was in the sixth grade. Uh, After I went through confirmation, and I uh, supposedly learned about things like the Trinity and the Holy Spirit, although Lord knows I barely understood any of those concepts back then, but I knew who Jesus was, and I loved Jesus, and I joined my local church. I took those membership vows, and I took those covenant vows, and I became a member at William C. Martin United Methodist Church in Bedford, Texas, but that's not the last church that I would join. I joined the Church of Social Acceptance when I was in the seventh grade. You've joined that church? I joined the church of pride when I was 15. I joined the church of independence and self-reliance when I was 17. I joined the church of perfectionism when I was 22. I joined the church of money and possessions when I was 23. And I joined the church of status and importance when I was 25. I joined a lot of churches. i got a lot of membership cards, do you? How thick is your wallet? During the course of my life, I've joined a lot of churches. Because, my friends, churches don't have to just be four walls and a steeple, Right? In my opinion, a church can be anything that promises us purpose, fulfillment, and joy in life in exchange for a personal sacrifice. That can be a church. Those things that promise us purpose and fulfillment and joy in life in exchange for a personal sacrifice, anything like that can be a church. The first century Jews had a relationship like that with with their church. I think we do today frequently, but they, they, they had been handed this kind of faith and this kind of church that was a burdensome list of rules, an oppressive system uh, with a bar so high that, that none of them could ever possibly reach it, and in exchange, they were offered this salvation that for so many, if not all of them, felt far out of reach. That's the kind of church that Jesus stepped into. They'd they'd been presented with a life that said, if you want to experience salvation, if you want to experience joy, if you want to find your purpose and what will make you whole, then here's the list of things you got to do. Good luck. Have you ever had a faith that felt like that? Have you ever been to a church that felt like that? And so the life of faith really became a life devoted to becoming more churchy, not more faithful. Rather than learning how to be in relationship with God, the Jewish people had learned how to be in relationship with rules. They'd forgotten how to worship God in their effort to worship church. And it's to these people that Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, you churchy people. Come to me and find real rest. Because these things that you think are going to give you life, you know they're not. You're never going to check every box. You're never going to meet that bar. You're never going to be able to follow every single rule. Aren't you exhausted? Anybody exhausted in the room just thinking about that? What he's saying to them and to us is this. We are not called to worship churches and worship rules. We are called to worship Jesus. This is what he's saying to us here in Dallas, Texas at Lover's Lane, 9200 Inwood Road this morning. We are not called to worship this carpet, these walls, this place, or whatever rules we think we have. We are not called to worship those things. We're called to worship Jesus because everything else is going to sell us short. Jesus was calling these churchy people to remember that the life of faith was never meant to be about a list of demands, that inspired fear or shame or guilt, right? I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation of the Bible. Uh, he, it's a sort of poetic way of, of, of reinterpreting some of Scripture. And he says, the way he phrases what Jesus says is, come to me and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Oh, I love that. The unforced rhythms of grace. The churches we join in our lives, the church of money, the church of power, the church of uh, influence the church of politics the church of career the church of personal pleasure seeking whatever fill in the blank church you belong to or you're a member of none of them and not even this one can offer what jesus does lovers lane mission statement is not to love all people into the membership roles of lovers lane united methodist church right that would be a terrible mission statement it's loving all people in relationship with jesus christ Where, they may have, where other churches have a lot of fine print and a laundry list of conditions that have to be met, the, they still let us down. The little churches that we join, they still let us down. Maybe we don't get everything that we thought we had earned. Maybe you don't get that promotion. Maybe you don't get that thing that you thought you were sacrificing everything for. Or worse yet, maybe you get everything you thought you wanted. And then when you got it, you realize It's hollow and it's not at all what you needed in the end. Friends, it's time that we stopped living in service to these little churches that require so much of us and offer so little in exchange. It's time that we removed our membership from some of these churches. So the first question I have for us today is, what churches do you need to withdraw your membership from? In the Methodist Church, when you, when you join another church, you're supposed to get, we're supposed to get a letter that says they've officially transferred. They're withdrawing their name from your membership rolls. Then we take them off the roll. So who do you need to send a letter to this week? Who do you need to withdraw your membership from? I'm, I'm done being a member of this church. Not Lovers Lane, I hope. Um, but I don't know. I hope not us. Like for me, it's the church of, of money and possessions, right? Right. Um, I am so guilty of thinking that the, the new thing, the new hobby, the new gadget is what I need in my life to make me happy forever. Anybody else that way? Early adopters in the room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. And, and, and it never does. The new hobby fades. The new thing breaks. The the, the attention span moves on, right? And so I'm, I'm withdrawing my membership. I'm trying to, this Lenten season, withdraw my membership from the Church of Possessions to say, this money, this time, this energy I've devoted to this, what if I took that back and devoted that instead to pursuing a greater relationship with Jesus and see where that took me? How can my money, how can my time, how can my energy be better spent trying to follow more closely after Jesus and do what he commands me? So what's yours? You're not going to fix yourself this Lent, right? You're not going to fix yourself in a week. You're not going to withdraw all your memberships tomorrow, right? What's one? What is one that you can really intentionally focus on? That's mine. So Jesus is a really good teacher. He doesn't just say things. He also shows us how to live. That's the best kind of teacher. You don't just tell, you also show. And so you're, you're, you're sort of left wondering, what does this different kind of faith look like? What is that going to lead me to? And, and, and isn't Jesus so awesome to show us? So picking up in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 1, it says this, and you'll see it on the screens. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the wheat fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they were picking heads of wheat and eating them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath law. They're breaking the churchy rules. But he said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those with him were hungry? This is King David, like really important guy in the Old Testament. David went into God's house and broke the law by eating the bread of the presence. That's like the communion bread, right? Like that's the really good stuff. That's the sacred stuff, which only the priests were allowed to eat. Or haven't you read in the law? That on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple treat the Sabbath as any other day. They get to eat and are still innocent. But he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple, something greater than being churchy is here. If you had known what this means, I want mercy and not sacrifice. You wouldn't have condemned the innocent. The human one is Lord of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus and his disciples in this kind of legalistic trap, right? They, 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 they see them breaking what is supposed to be like the most basic, good, churchy person rule-following rule in the Jewish faith, which is don't do work on the Sabbath. And harvesting in a field, even plucking a single grain of wheat, harvesting in a field is, legally speaking, working on the Sabbath. They're breaking the law. Jesus is proving to us to not be very churchy, Right? So he calls out the Pharisees, and I mean, honestly, he calls out us, right? When, when we get so focused on the legalistic interpretation of what we're supposed to be doing and what the rules are supposed to be, that we suck the joy and the life out of faith, and what had been a source of life is now a source of starvation. The Pharisees would rather the disciples go hungry and starve than eat a simple meal on a day that is supposed to be restful. I don't know about you, but I can't rest when I'm hangry. Like fasting, like Lord Jesus will lead, it, lead me to fasting one day, but today's not that day, right? Um, I, when Jesus shows us what this looks like, it, it, what it says to me is this. It's a reminder that faith should fill us up, not burn us out. Faith should fill us up and not burn us out. I think too often we think that, that faith is, is like the Pharisees' approach to faith, is the approach that so many churches and Christians have today where it's just about following every single rule and we're squeezing the life and joy out of it and people are getting burned out in the process and it's driving people to exhaustion and out of relationship with Jesus. Now I want to say this, are we called to self-denial in the Christian faith? Yes, absolutely, of course. Are we called to self-sacrifice as followers of Jesus? Yes, period. The Jesus who says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, is the same Jesus who will later say, pick up your cross and follow me, right? It's not all sunshine and rainbows for Christians, right? But what we lose sight of is that we're not called to sacrifice just for sacrifice's sake. We are not called to martyrdom just for martyrdom's sake, We are called to denial and sacrifice and selflessness for Jesus' sake. And someone in the room needs to hear this this morning. Jesus does not want us to become burned-out shells of ourselves who lose our faith altogether. Someone needs to hear this this morning. Jesus does not want you to become a burned-out shell of yourself who loses your faith altogether. That is not the calling. The life of faith should fill us up should fill us up, even if on simple meals like the one shared by the disciples in the field, heads of grain, right? We're not promised extravagance and prosperity in the traditional sense, but we are promised an abundant life. What does that mean? It's the kind of inner strength and joy that Paul talks about, the Apostle Paul, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as he prepares to suffer and die for his faith. That's the kind of abundant life we're being called to. Paul was filled up even as he suffered and died. I think we buy into this false dichotomy that says Jesus either calls us to everything that is easy and fun and the stuff that we already want to do, or Jesus calls us to the really difficult, hard, painful stuff that is really challenging and wears us out, right? Either Jesus wants us to be filled up or Jesus wants us to be worn out, and I don't think it's that simple because it's those places in, in the center where, the, where those two zones meet, right? What fills you up and what wears you out? I could be filled up all day, right? Let's talk about filled up. That's easy stuff. Who loves to Netflix binge? Who's watching Love is Blind right now? Me. It is trash TV, and I love it. I love it. It's insane, and it is not what God is calling me to spend my life doing, right? I am not called to binge Love is Blind for the remainder of my days, right? Let's talk about the difficult stuff. The really hard stuff. I mean, this is the stuff that is so challenging that breaks us, that breaks us down, and we can't avoid it. We live in a broken and challenging world. We're going to live in this zone for times, but if all we do is spend all of our time there, we're going to end up a burned out shell. Let's talk about what's in the middle, the stuff that fills us up and wears us out. Let me tell you about my birthday. I love being a dad. It's one of the greatest joys of my life. I love it. It was my birthday this past weekend. Like this weekend. We're still in it. It's still my birthday weekend. <laughs> Welcome to it. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's why I said it. I was hoping. Um, so for my birthday, uh, my wife is throwing together a gathering of all my friends. Like, yes, and their kids. Oh. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Love that. But here's the thing, I love being a dad so much. Our house last night, we had 20 people in our house, and, and, and only a half dozen of them were children, but you know that half dozen is weighted, right? That's a weighted half dozen. <laughs> and it was loud and it was crazy and there was food on the floor and food on the walls and food in places that food shouldn't be and there was Frozen 2 on the TV way too loud and I couldn't hear anybody talking and, and a glass got dropped at one point, it was my daughter's favorite glass we just got the Onward premiere, the movie premiere I know, sorry, I'm so sorry but it happened and so she's having a meltdown and it's crazy and everyone's screaming and one of the kids goes home in one of Andy's dragon costumes because just so and she actually came to church in the same dragon costume this morning, it was that kind of a rage it was nuts. <laughs> and I hit the bed, and I fell asleep like 10 minutes after everybody left. And I loved it. I was worn out, and I was filled up. Do you hear what I'm saying? That spot, that's the special sauce right there. That is the magic place. That is the space where God's opportunities in the world, where the really hard, meaningful work needs to take place, and where you are uniquely called and equipped, that's where that stuff lives. That's what our lives are about. Now, do we get to have fun just for fun's sake? Of course, but if that's all you do, you're going to look back and go, what did I really do? And if all you do is just live in the the challenge zone, in the the burning zone, I mean, that's just going to burn you out. And you can't live there long. But if you find that secret sauce, where you're filled up and worn out, you've found the purpose, you've found the reason why God made you, yes, you, and placed you on this earth. Those are special things. So here's the question, second question for us this morning. What fills me up even if it wears me out? What fills me up even if it wears me out? One of those things for me is being a dad. fills me up and wears me out. The work I do for the church fills me up, wears me out. Right? Mission trips. Man, you ever been on a mission trip? You've been like digging fence po- doing fence holes all day long, filled up, worn out. That's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. What's that for you? The life of faith should bring us life and joy and strength and passion and everything that makes life worth living and it should take us to places that are hard and even painful because that's the unique place where God's work needs to be done, and where you are uniquely called and equipped. So now you're asking, Jesus, what does that look like? That sounds really good. What does that look like? And isn't Jesus a good teacher? He's going to show us. So the Bible says this, continuing in verse 9. This is all one right after the other. It says, Jesus left that place and went into their synagogue. A man with a withered hand was there, wanting to bring charges against Jesus. The Pharisees asked, does the law allow a person to heal on the Sabbath? Right? You can almost like hear their fingers tapping. Right? What's he going to say? Jesus replied, who among you has a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath and will not take hold of it and pull it out? He said, how many of you are going to look at a sheep in a hole and say, it's the Sabbath? He says, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? That's how Jesus says it in my head, right? He's like frustrated. So the law allows a person to do what is good on the Sabbath, Jesus says. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. So the man with the withered hand, he stretched it out, and it was made healthy. Boom. Just like the other one. Done. Healed. The Pharisees went out and met in order to find a way to destroy Jesus. Because he broke the rules. Jesus knew what they intended to do, so he went away from there. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all. Right? He's like, oh, you want me to stop healing? Boom! Everybody's healed. How you like me now? Yeah, yeah. That's my Jesus. I like that Jesus. Friends, we have to acknowledge that for so many in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our world, that the church and the kind of faith that's been preached from pulpits, the life of faith and the relationship with a rules-based church, it's been a source of of wounds for a lot of people. I think about the man with the withered hand, right? He was wounded in more ways than one. Here's this man. He'd been going to this synagogue since he was a little boy, raised in the faith, right? Taught what to do. Sit up straight. Don't put your elbows on the table. Let the lady walk by your right side, right? Shake a man's hand when you're looking at him. He did everything he was supposed to do, lived his whole life. He heard priests stand in those pulpits, stand in the church and and say to him, you know, this is a faith that can bring you healing. This is a faith that offers hope, that offers life, that offers freedom. You can find that here. And so he becomes a man who hears this week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath. He hears this message. And then one day, wouldn't you know it, a healer walks into his synagogue, his. This is the moment he's been waiting for. And he walks up and he says, it's time for me to be healed. I've heard this message preached. I know what God has in store for me. And the Pharisees stop him and say, not for you. Not today. You're not getting healed. That's against the rules. He was wounded, and I'm not talking about his hand. And we got a lot of folks who've been told, not today, not you, you're not getting healed. That's against the rules. Friends, if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this last point. Faith should be a source of healing, not wounds. Jesus was frustrated. Going, how much more valuable is a human than a sheep? He's frustrated because he sees the pain. He sees the tears welling up in the man's eyes. Faith should be a source of healing, not of wounds. Let me say it really clearly. If your faith, if you go to a church, if you hear a pastor Young people in the room, online, if you go to a college ministry, if you go to a youth ministry, if you ever hear someone stand up and they try to put deep personal shame or guilt or fear or anxiety on you in the name of God because of your faith, then it's time for you to walk away from whatever church or pastor you are hearing or sitting in. It's time to walk away from a relationship with rules and to walk back into a faith with Jesus because Fear and shame and guilt and, and, and anxiety, those are gifts of the Pharisees. Those are the gifts that good churchy people like you and me offer to people all too often. I am guilty. I have offered people judgment and shame in the name of Jesus. But that's not what Jesus offers. Jesus only ever offers grace and healing and tender care to the wounded and the hurting. Faith should be a source of healing, not of wounds. Is somebody going to say amen this morning? But here's the really crazy cool thing Here's the reason why Jesus Is so much greater than any of us Is because it doesn't stop At just one man's hand being healed right? It doesn't stop with just one man's hand being healed But, but a crowd follows him As he's run out of town And everybody experiences this healing moment This man's personal story Becomes the catalyst For a healing experience For a whole host of people Just a moment later Like that, boom If you're asking yourself, Scott, what does it look like to be in that secret special sauce? Maybe it looks like this. Maybe your story of healing is a catalyst for a kind of healing that could be experienced by so many people. One of my favorite theologians is a Dutch man named Henry Nouwen. He was a professor at harvard amongst other things crazy brilliant but his secret sauce what he found he was really good at and what his gift to the life of faith was he could take really highfalutin theological stuff and, and and bring it down to earth and make it relatable and accessible and grounded in the lived human experience and his books are like that long and i love him he's awesome right he's awesome in his book the wounded healer the wounded healer he says this Nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, he says, but the question is this how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? Wow. When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, We have become wounded healers. I love the question he offers up. How can we put our woundedness in the service of others? How can we put our woundedness in the service of others? It's the kind of question that I hear Jesus asking in our scripture today. It was through Jesus' wounds that all of the earth was saved, right? It doesn't make us ruined or weak because we're wounded. It makes us human. Jesus was human too. So friends, as we continue in the season of Lent and in this Soul Reset series, as we seek the wholeness in our lives that comes through walking more closely with Jesus, can we remember the kind of faithfulness that Jesus is calling every one of us churchy people to? The kind of faith that walks away from rules-based, empty, promised churches, whether they have steeples or not. The kind of faith that finds purpose in what fills us up even while it wears us out. And the kind of faith that redeems wounds into a source of healing. I don't know about you, but churchy friends, aren't you tired of living a churchy life? Aren't you tired of trying to meet every high bar and check every expectation off the list? Doesn't this sound refreshing? Does this sound like the kind of faith that you could fall into? Jesus says, follow me, all who are weary. Follow me. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks for the ways in which you call us to stop, to rest, to reconsider what it is we think we're here for. God, we give you thanks for the simple meals, the The grains of wheat on the Sabbath that keep us going, that offer us life, abundant life, and inner strength and peace and joy that allows us to endure all things and to hope in every season. God, some of us this morning need to walk away from a rules based church. We need to stop trying so hard to be churchy and instead allow ourselves to be led by you and loved by you to let your grace grace us again. God, some of us need your help in finding that special place, that unique opportunity where your work is needed and we are uniquely called and equipped. God, stir within us that knowing of what fills us up and what wears us out so that we can make our lives worth living. And God, for those in the room who need healing this morning in more ways than one, for those who've been wounded and healed, God, could you remind us that, you, that our faith, that, that your church was always meant to be a wellspring of healing not just so that we could experience the healing, God, but so that we, in turn, could get outside these walls and allow that healing experience to take place for so many others, so many others. In all things and in every season, God, we give you thanks. And It's in the name of the wounded healer, the one who saves us. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things and we say, Amen.